when I was a little kid, and even into my teenage years, I remember what a refreshing feeling it was to move the furniture around in my bedroom. Uh, you probably know what I mean. Uh, you get a little bit bored with your bed being over in this corner and your desk being by that window and the chair being over near the door. So one day you just get up the energy to move the bed to the other side of the room and the desk against that wall. And well, this was just a habit of mine. And I don't know, every six to 12 months, I would be in the mood to, to move the furniture around and find a, a nice way for the natural light to hit my desk in the afternoon. Now the bed's by the window, and I like the way the room's arranged. It's more open now. You know, I might keep it this way for as many as six more months. Fast forward to today, Aaron and I have been slowly but surely renovating a fixer-upper. Emphasis on the fixer part. You'd never know it from the outside looking in. But the interior is significantly updated from what it was four years ago. I will confess that this experience has not been as pleasurable as moving my furniture around as a kid. Renovations are hard work. They're hard work even if you're not the ones doing the actual work. Raise your hand if you've ever renovated your kitchen hired a crew, come in, take out all the cabinets and all the appliances, and, well, I don't mean to stir up a bad memory for you, but probably what you would rather have done than stay in your house throughout that ordeal was to move out for the entire duration of the renovation. Some of our neighbors just moved back into their house after just renovating their kitchen and living room. They've been gone for five months and they hired a crew. We come to a scripture passage today that holds within its verses one of the most profound invitations to renovation in the New Testament. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. In just this phrase alone, we find one of Paul's most direct descriptions of the power Christ's resurrection holds for us now in the present. Here is Paul not merely witnessing to the power of Christ's resurrection as a historical reality. Paul is not merely establishing the grounds of hope in the resurrection in the future. Rather, Paul is asserting the resurrection's power to well up within the present. He is pointing to the imminence of Christ's resurrection. Resurrection happening now, beginning in the deepest depths of our minds and in our hearts. Paul invites us to recognize how Christ's resurrection can affect the renewing of our minds, the refurbishing of our intellect, the restoration of our faculties, the revitalization of our judging and feeling and perceiving. With wisdom and passion, he bears witness to the capacity for a human being to participate, to be drawn into the past and the future resurrection all while being in the present, here, today, right now. One of the most fascinating areas of scientific discovery in recent decades has to do with the way the brain functions. 
Our brain matter is so mesmerizing and so mysterious, you'd think some of the peer-reviewed studies about it were written for science fiction movies. One of the most interesting things about our brains has to do with the way that we learn. Our brains are home to about 100 billion neurons and even more what are called uh, glia, which means glue in Latin, but it's more than glue, all functioning together to send and receive the signals of our thoughts and feelings, our memories and our instincts. We know that we learn new things by creating new neurons and new pathways between neurons. When you're studying for your test, your brain is doing something called neurogenesis. It works better if you don't do an all-nighter, but that's what's happening in your brain as you're going through the flashcards and memorizing tables. Where new neurons develop in the hippocampus, and new roots are established between neurons that previously weren't connected. All of that's happening when we're learning. Now, I can't tell you what the medulla oblongata is doing all this time. But amongst the neurons and the glia, something new is happening as we learn, as we experience. The hippocampus is very busy when our minds are being transformed. Which is to say when you're learning, when you're reading, when you're studying, and you feel like you're making new connections, that's actually happening on a physical level in your brain. Your brain is physically altering as you go. Even older adults, I can hear you now, I I hear you on the other side right now saying, not my brain, my brain's retired. No, even your brain, even as we age, neurons continue to develop, New connections are made as long as we're living and learning. Our brains are going through metamorphosis. Incidentally, that's the word Paul uses here. To be transformed by the renewing of our minds is to experience metamorphosis of the way we perceive reality. It's fascinating that Paul uses the word metamorphosis here because he doesn't use it anywhere else in his letters. We only find it here And in one other account in the New Testament, and that's in Matthew and Mark's account of the transfiguration. At the transfiguration, Peter, James, John, disciples, just a few of them invited to the special unveiling, stand dumbfounded and slack-jawed as Jesus' face goes through a metamorphosis, is transfigured before their eyes. Jesus goes through this metamorphosis. His face is transfigured. His clothes shine as bright as the sun. What is happening in this moment? Is it nothing more than a revelation of the full divinity of Jesus Christ? Well, in part it is that. But isn't it also a glimpse of his future resurrection? I believe that to see Jesus' metamorphosis in this moment is to see the future fold back onto the past, on into the present. At the transfiguration, God is also giving us the gift of seeing an astonishing glimpse of our own destiny of being raised with Jesus. And in the inner recesses of our minds, tucked into the folds of our brain matter at levels that are invisible to the naked eye, these little sparks of metamorphosis, of transfiguration, These little promissory glimpses of resurrection are sparkling inside of us. 
each one of us, as we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. May I ask you a personal question? Has your mind changed about anything lately? Say in the last five months? The things you think and believe today, are they the same as what you thought in March? What about in the last year or the last five years? Woe to those about whom it may be said, my mind is made up, I know all I need to know. But part of what it means to be Christian is to live ever presently in this mode of metamorphosis. A telltale sign of faith is not a grasping for certainty or a settled satisfaction in the way things are, but a plasticity of the mind an ever-ready capacity for transformation. This is not to say we should be so open-minded that we never arrive at any convictions. But it is to say that to be a Christian is to have an ever-ready capacity to discern whether some of our convictions are really just prejudices or lazy thinking and hiding. How will we know if we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds? When we witness something that illuminates the darkness. When we experience something that leaves us speechless. When we discover something that scares us at first, but then it captures our imagination and then we can't let it go and it leaves us a different person than we were before. When something asleep inside of us wakes up. When something we learn is life-giving, not just for us, but for others. When something dead in our hearts or minds is resurrected. When we look back on who we used to be and we thank God. That's not who we are anymore. We are being transformed by the renewing, the metamorphosis, the little resurrections of our minds. I've told some of the story before of Ann Atwater and C.P. Ellis, both residents of Durham, North Carolina. There's a a play about their enemy status transforming into friendship. Ann Atwater, a black Durham uh, member of the Durham uh, community. C.P. Ellis, a poor blue collar worker, member of the Klan. Ooh, he and Ann Atwater hated one another. But as the story unfolds, we see them continue to encounter one another. And one night at a rally, a community meeting, everyone's singing a hymn, and C.P. Ellis is sitting down, and Ann Atwater just happened to catch his knee bobbing up and down to the gospel hymn. And she thought to herself, we got him. Well, it wasn't just the gospel story that got C.P. Ellis and changed his mind about race and friendship and what it means to be a, a white man in the South and friendship with a black woman in a place like Durham, North Carolina. It was that C.P. Ellis learned 
he learned that he had so much more in common with Ann Atwater than he previously thought. He learned that they had both grown up poor. They both grew up disadvantaged, and they both grew up being played against each other by the powers and the principalities of their time. And as his relationship, this very rocky, fiery relationship with Ann Atwater, turned from hostility to friendship, you can almost see the synapses firing in his brain and the new neurons being created, new pathways, new glimpses and sparks of resurrection. Interestingly enough, what stirred up my memory of this story was a recent uh, paper of our own church's history that our church historian Wayne Caldwell offered to a, a Sunday school class just a couple of weeks ago in which he recalls moments in our church's history long ago, long ago, when members of our church were regarded as blue class and poor black. Now, we used to have many black members back before the Civil War. Of course, uh, they had been enslaved black people in our community, and it's not clear how much power and how equal they were, though let's be frank, it was not a relationship of perfect equality here. However, there seemed to be a recognition in the community that our congregation was made up of blue-collar people and black people, just enough so that we got nicknamed the Drat Shot Gang. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's a great nickname for a church. I don't know what we'd do with Drat Shot Gang, but we at least got to rename our softball team. Ah, the Drat Shot game. Perfect name for a congregation. Can lean back into its history. Lean forward into the future. And enjoy in the present a being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Paul did it. He changed his mind so much he changed his name. There's even moments in Scripture where God changes God's mind. I know in my own experience it feels good looking back on it, knowing that my mind has changed. I don't even want to go back to 2015 Mac. Come to think of it, I don't even want to go back to March 2020 Mac. Come to think of it, I sense God is calling me right now to go move some furniture around. Amen.